Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Dallas Molster, who is a guitarist, songwriter, and vocalist for the band Grayscale. Here goes. Dallas Molster, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You're a guitar player that does a lot of recording. I do. Yeah. I'm going to speak for Brown here. Sorry, Brown, I don't mean to speak for you, but I already know how you feel about this. <laughs> We've said a lot that recording yourself is one of the quickest ways to get better as a guitarist or a musician or really any type of instrumentalist, just because that's the only way that you can really know how you're playing or sounding. Um, why did you start recording yourself, out of curiosity? Well, I guess, so I was lucky enough to be at the age where it, you know, when that started crossing my mind, you know, instead of going to a friend's house that had like a, you know, it was a, I think it was a Cubase, it was like Cubase four or five or something that he had had. And, you know, he was recording bands locally. And um, when it came time for him to upgrade his rig, I I think I said, I was like, maybe I, don't know, I was maybe 12 or 13 when he was, you know, getting rid of that stuff. So he ended up selling me his, uh, his fire pod and his Cubase license. Um, and you know, I was lucky enough to be able to put, have that in my bedroom at such a young age. And, uh, it was, you know, at the time it was just starting young. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was pretty young when, when I got into it. Um, but it was, you know, a lot of trial and error to try to figure out like, you know, just how to record ideas in general. But then, you know, fast forward, I'm what, 20, 27 now. So it's like, I've spent a majority of my, you know, life, not only playing guitar, but recording it. So it's like, you know, I, it's just trial and error. You just, you, you start to hear in the recordings, all the little nuances of your playing and kind of to your point, like it really does make you think a little bit differently you know you're not always like trying to learn you know the newest you know you're not trying to blow through the curriculum i guess you're spending more time on just recording the rhythm parts and making sure like the voicing of those chord chords are all there and all that sort of stuff so it's like it is it's a very interesting thing that you that you kind of i guess you subconsciously are realizing as you're going through it it's a very fascinating and cool thing to me and i just like i feel like i guess my answer is like i've spent 
a majority of my playing recording it. It's just in your DNA at this point. Yeah, it's like second nature. It's like, oh, I'm like, I'm, I have an idea. I'm just going to pop open Pro Tools real fast. It's not like I'll just, pull, you know, most people's like pull up a voice memo and do it that way. It's like, I'm, you know, I'll have an idea or a riff and I'll take six takes and comp it together and be like, oh, the, that's a cool part or that's a cool riff or a cool, you know, section that could be like a pre-chorus or a chorus or something. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I just wanted to say you're a traitor <laughs> moving from Cubase to Pro Tools. No, <laughs> a man after my own heart. <laughs> Sorry, I am. Team Pro Tools right here. It was when they, they made Pro Tools when they, you know, when I think it was either version eight or nine when they made it, you know, available to be used with any other interface. And I had that. That was nine. Yeah. So I had that fire pod and I was like, Oh, I can get pro tools for $600. I'm going to save up birthday money and stuff and use what everybody uses. And now it's like, you know, people are using logic and, and I've heard awesome things about Cubase like nowadays too. And I loved Cubase when I, when I was using it, cause it was like, I could figure out how to like quickly write out MIDI parts for drums and like be, you know, jamming with myself. Cause it's like when you, when you live kind of in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, there's like eight people that play music and they're all in bands already. So you're just like <laughs> doing it yourself. You know? Yeah. I just got the new Pro Tools. We've been messing with it. I'm sorry. Dude, no. Actually, the new Pro Tools is great. The new Pro Tools is everything everything that all the Pro Tools haters hated about Pro Tools is pretty much now in Pro Tools. It even looks cool. I also think that half the reason people liked the other DAWs is because they looked cooler. Like Pro Tools always looked bad and old and we are visual creatures. I mean, look, like it's the same reason that people love... Not the only reason. These are great plugins. But one of the reasons that FabFilter has done as well as they've done, I think, is because they're very pleasant on the eyes. And uh, not in addition to being great plugins, they're all I know great plugins that have horrible um, GUIs and uh, haven't done as well. So anyways, the new Pro Tools looks fucking great. But you, uh, what I want to like the dark mode. Are you a guy. I, I tried it. I am now. It just looked so different. I was like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> in my brain. Well, you got to understand, I didn't do it for a long time. I took a break. And so coming back from the break is kind of like being in suspended animation and then the world advances without you. And then, you know, like one of those like time travel movies or something or like where the person wakes up and 20 years went by. Sure. Anyhow, so I opened Pro Tools and it's completely different. And so I guess it's been so long that it's not throwing me off. It's really cool. I love the dark mode. I see people, all they're like, uh, my friends that are all users, they're like, yeah, dark mode, dark mode. It's really cool. It looks different. I'm just like... Take seven years off. <laughs> then, then try it. You might feel differently about it. But, you know, about the voice memo thing, I've never been one of those voice memo people. And I know quite a few people that are into the voice memos, but... I've never honestly understood that uh, because I feel like unless you've got a really like, you, I don't mean like a great singing voice, but a very uh, expressive voice, how exactly you're going to sing a riff, like especially the, the heavier you go, the more technical you go, I guess, how exactly you're going to sing a riff or a part that's not designed for the human voice. The only times that I feel that we ever actually use the voice memos are actually just, you know, for, for the human voice, but like putting, you know, put, playing an acoustic guitar or like an electric guitar or like humming, like a thing that you're thinking is going to be a guitar riff. Like it makes, I agree. It makes absolutely zero sense 
to me doing it into a voice memo like that when you can at least with today's you know ability to you know plug into your amp that's you know just in your computer and just you know you've got that sound that you're looking for already just pick a preset and you're good to go and then you start riffing it but like yeah the voice memo like unless it's literally for a vocal melody and you're just humming out like like you're trying to find like that tag melody or you've got that lyric and you're like trying to you know piece it together with you know the rest of like your mix or your song playing in the background like that's the only instance that i have voice memos on my phone i feel another thing about voice memos is you can't sing a chord progression well you could if you did like five voice memos and then took them onto your DAW and then put them onto <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of goes back to the point of why not just use a DAW. I feel kind of the same way about Guitar Pro as well with guitar players. I never really understood why you would go to the effort of inputting everything. Like maybe if you don't have a guitar with you, it makes kind of a little bit of sense. But for me, I always found it easier just to pick up the guitar and fucking play it in. It was like a third of the time. Yeah. Um, I never, ever, you know, I, I had friends, you know, like, like I said, the eight people that played music around me, um, one or two of them being the <laughs> guitar players. It was, I forget what this kid's name was. We used to play together, but he was adamant about using, uh, I think it was like, yeah, it was like guitar pro or one of those tabbing programs. And he would, you know, spend days tabbing out a four chord song. And it's like, why are we spending all of our time doing that when we could just sit in the room teach you know each other what we're you know riffing off of or whatever and you know then just record it like i just I, the tab programs never made sense to me while it made sense like when you could download them and like watch them you know play through when that started becoming a thing on like ultimate guitar or whatever when you know you, you could download the tab program and do the demo and it would play you like the little section that you want to learn or whatever occasionally it would do that when i was trying to learn songs but it was like i don't know the the tabbing thing i just never I know some people do it well, but I feel like writing on Guitar Pro is a really weird way to write guitar parts because you're not taking into account the physical feel side of, of the equation. But um, I feel like for documenting things that are already written, it's pretty great. Like, for instance, um, when I did my guitar album, you know, there are a lot of parts for a lot of different tunings and parts that were being written for other instruments or we we had like a, a synth person who we hired who was supposed to take these guitar compositions I wrote and completely just make like synth orchestras out of them. And that was a great way to get him, get him the MIDI. Um, so I feel like there is a good use for it when it comes to documentation as well as when uh, working with other people, like kind of like the old school music notation, you give your players a chart or some sheet music. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. But to me, it, it kind of makes, it's kind of weird to like spend a lot of time writing on it uh, and not including <laughs> the instrument. Yes. That's the weird part. I was going to agree with you to the point that it's like, that's how we've done music since we've had paper and ink. You know what I mean? Like using it in that sense, that, that makes sense to me. And if my brain, you know, kind of worked that way and wanted to do like document in that fashion or learn a program to be able to do that, like that makes complete sense. But yeah, I, I, you're right. It's like just 
literally coming up with the riff and sitting there and all when you play it back it's just dun 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 dun. it's just like all like very inhuman like midi and i i haven't used any of those or tried any of those programs in a long time so i don't know like how they sound or whatever but like between the dynamics of your performance and all that stuff and like you know the way you're you know voicing your chords and things like that like it's you know i feel like it's all at a hundred always in those programs whereas if you just play it and record it you're saving a lot of time and getting the message across quicker uh, actually getting the message across in the first place yes yeah it's really hard for me at least to understand music inside of those programs like i hear <laughs> notes and rhythm but communicating the intent i don't know how you would do that yeah it's the same with written music as well if you think about it you know like those um musical notations from people like bark beethoven and composers like that i've heard of them yeah you might have done i mean they're, they were they're, they're all right they were known slightly <laughs> but um it's funny that the way that they're played now by different people is probably completely different than how they were meant to sound my dad's entire career is based on the interpretation of that stuff like all there is for most of what he conducts is well there's recordings of other people's interpretations but all we've got really is a book of music to go off of it was like as dallas was saying there's certain voicings of certain chords especially when it comes to instruments like the guitar maybe you know different for piano but for stringed chordal instruments then the voicing makes a lot of difference. You know, the difference between a bar chord D and then a D chord, you know, that everyone knows that you learn within the first couple of months of you playing the guitar, they sound completely different. And I think that that kind of stuff isn't easily able to be sort of projected through written notation, no. if that makes sense. So those those kind of little nuances that we pick up, which we were talking about earlier by recording yourself, that... Uh, completely lost to time now because of that notation, which is why Guitar Pro, even though, yes, you can see that it's on a guitar, it doesn't ever show the intent of what was meant to happen. Certain expressions can't be written down. Yeah, you could say louder, softer, palm mute. Yeah, you can say that, but it doesn't really, each person plays differently, don't they? Yeah, it's it's weird. Can you imagine it being written down? Use a .88mm Tortex pick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't imagine it being written down. You know, what's interesting about this, though, is curious how you feel, right? Using Guitar Pro, we've agreed, makes it very difficult to communicate the intent. But then on the other hand, I feel like also if you spend too long on demos, getting the intent perfect and everything about it perfect, you're kind of uh, blowing your load before the actual recording, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely a person that spends far too much time on the demo. <laughs> you know, I think everybody in my band can agree, agree. I have an addictive personality about very specific things in my life. And I feel like most of us as musicians have that, whether we want to admit it or not, that we have an addictive personality. And it's like, I get so like locked into figuring out how all of this stuff is going to meld together that sometimes I don't even know if the part's cool. The song might just suck. It might be awful, but I'm just <laughs> like, it doesn't matter to me if the song is good or not, because I want it to be in its best possible version that I can make it for somebody else to be like, okay, here's why this works. And here's why this doesn't work. And I think sometimes I definitely do that to a fault. I spend way too much time on something that 
gets thrown out the next day. But I don't know, that's, a, that's just a part of like the process, or at least how my brain works when it comes to these sorts of things. Like you just get, I get way too involved way too quickly. I think that when recording music, that it can be a product of demoing it. Uh, a good example of this actually is uh, Foo Fighters, The Pretender, where the recording on the album is actually the demo that they did for it because they couldn't ever recreate it the same way. I believe Spit It Out by Slipknot. Yep, that might also, I don't know about that one, but if you say so, then I'm pretty certain that all of us here have had the problem where a demo has turned out better than the final version that ended up on a release. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And again, that comes down to intent, how you played it in that specific moment, especially if you're not going to be editing and quantizing, depending on what sort of style of music you play, whether that's required or not. A lot of it is down to feel, especially with, you know, the more rocky genres or, you know, something like reggae or something like that, where it's all based on feel. Whereas obviously brutal metal is generally quantized and you can kind of get away with a little bit more. But when it comes to feel genres, I think that sometimes the the demo stage could probably be quite scary. There's two sides to it. It's like the, you know, there's the demo-itis side that, you know, a lot of people use that term, but it's like you get so used to the way, you know, you make that sound in the demo that you want that to happen you know, in the yeah. actual recording. And sometimes, you know, the producer's like, let's take a different approach with the sound. And that's great. And, you know, so like there's the demo-itis side, but then there's also the working with a producer that trusts the fact that, you know, you didn't waste your time recording something. And if it sounds great, you know, the producer making that call saying, let's just use those acoustics. Like, why would we spend time re-recording them when they already sound great? And you've made, you know, you've put you know, the chorus effects and, you know, all, all the shit that you want on it. Like you've, you know, when they realize that you've made that where you want it to be sonically, and then it's just up to them to pop it in and then start recording the rest of the song around yeah. it. I think that there's, you know, that's, that's a positive, that's another positive side to it. And look, you know, in 2020, it's very, or 2021, it's very easy for us to do that. So I guess the point there being like, I think, you know, there's two sides. It's like the negative side being like, I'm so used to that. I don't want to change it. I'm not open to other things, but then the positive side is like somebody reinforcing the fact that maybe you were right about, you know, what that part sounds like or what that, you know, what that vocal take was like from the demo. You know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's strange because, uh, compromise is like a very important skill yeah. to have if you want to get along in this world with people, have <laughs> you know, relationships that stay together, projects that don't you know, implode businesses that don't implode like compromise is it's, I think that there's this, uh, there's this notion that compromise means selling out, but no compromise is like crucial to any sort of progress and continuation of anything you're doing with other people. However, however, all that said, man, I think that sometimes those compromises you make when writing songs can be just as bad as not knowing how to compromise. Yeah. That's music, knowing which mistakes to leave in. Man, there have been some situations where I have agreed to go democratic with certain things when it came to writing that I regret <laughs> to this day. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure we all know bands that were like, uh, you know, had one or two central figures that wrote most of it and then they changed that structure and it's not that they started to suck, but they weren't as good. 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, not naming names. But, uh, you know, the thing is, on the other hand, the opposite is also true at times. Yeah. So knowing when you have to be a tyrant versus knowing when to give up and listen to somebody else, that's a tough one, I think. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, I, th- I think the biggest thing kind of to touch on, on relate, you know, you were mentioning like compromising in relationships and it's like, it, it truly is like a, re- you know, a relationship in that sense. Like you have to find at least for us, you know, with this last record we just did, we did it with this guy, Courtney Ballard. And I didn't know that he had been, you know, listening to our band for as long as he had been, but you know, that relationship that we have with him, like he understands he understood even before like meeting us, like what we were doing and like what our, you know, what our goals were. And for the most part, he was pretty spot on with a lot of them. And so to your point, the whole like compromise is finding the right person to be able to compromise with. And like, yep. when, you know, working with him and at, like I said, it's like, you know, using those parts from the demo or, you know, we need to rewrite this entire part of this song. Let's do like, this is what we're doing today. Let's rewrite this as a crew, you know, Dallas, you've spent enough time on it. Let's, let's get everybody in the room together and see what everybody thinks. Like that, like finding that relationship and maintaining that throughout the course of doing a record is like, you know, a very crucial part to it. And I think, you know, especially with this one, this is like the one that I'm the most proud of. I feel like everybody says that it's always the most recent one is the one that they're most proud of, but (laughs) I truly am the most proud of this record. You should be, I would hope. I mean, imagine if it wasn't that way. (laughs) I mean, look, there's these things that like uh, everybody always says is like, we all know that people are going to say, this is our heaviest record yet, or this is our most honest record yet, or this record is the truest to what we intended. Everybody says that. And so like when you hear people saying it, you read it or whatever, it's like, yeah, whatever. But at the same time, imagine if they weren't saying that. That would be a problem. <laughs> so, like, yeah, when people say that, it's like, yeah, everyone, everybody says that. I've just heard Corey Taylor talking about, <laughs> paying for it. yeah, about the new Slipknot record, like at least seventy times, and I've heard clowns say that he has never heard Corey Taylor sound quite like this about a hundred times. Everybody says that, but again, if they weren't saying that, I'd be concerned. Yes. Uh, yeah. What does that mean if they're not saying like, yeah, the record's cool, but it's not that cool. Or like we were, we were lukewarm on this one. The other <laughs> one's better. We delivered an album. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? When you hear people saying that there are times when people have said we delivered it to get out of a record deal or something. Like whenever you hear a musician who's a signed musician say using, yeah, the, we delivered an album or we just kind of had to kind of thing. That's usually, well, either overt or covert, because sometimes they'll just say it, but that's usually just AKA what it means is they're phoning it in to get out of a bad situation. So it is, it's always concerning when people don't think that their latest work is their best. Sure. I couldn't, whether or not they're right is different story. Couldn't imagine being, you know, feeling like that, but you're right. I mean, people, you know, people are open about that. You know, you, you read about it. It's like, yeah, we had to do this to get out of there. And it's like, that must be such a shit feeling, shit spot to be in. You're creating just to get out of something toxic. Yeah. I have never personally been in a, in a situation like that, but I have known people who have been in situations like that. And uh, like, we know of popular bands 
who have been in situations like that. But I've seen situations like that prevent someone's career from even happening in the first place. Like for instance, there's this guitar player and I'm not going to name him, but he was one of my old guitar teachers. He was like a, an eighties shredder kind of guy, really fucking great. And I believe that what happened is that he was in a band that got signed to a major label and then they got shelved, but not dropped. But the label owned his name and likeness and they wouldn't release they wouldn't release it. Not just not release the record, but they wouldn't release the rights to his name and likeness for whatever reason. And for 15 years, he couldn't do anything. Like he wasn't allowed to do anything. And for whatever reason, I, you know, I don't know if he did, if he fucked something up or, you know, fucked the wrong dude's wife or something or, you know, like <laughs> I, or like just, it was just dealing with total crooks, but he was not able to do any music professionally like recorded ever like until he was like way past the age to try to be in a really big band um so that was one situation where i have seen that type of thing completely drop a grenade on a promising career but it also goes the other way too like with being forced to supply records sometimes it brings out artists best work because they're fucking pissed off yes sure a good example of that is a little bit different than uh than your style of music here dallas but it's a band called uh ion dissonance and they're from canada oh yes I can't remember the album name right now, but uh, they were very, very pissed off with their label on this release. I'm just searching it now. It was uh, Cursed, I think was the album title. Yes, they were very, very pissed off at their label. Did I ever tell you that they played in my basement in 2003 on their first US tour ever? What? Yeah. Dude, <laughs> fucking Eye on Dissonance in my basement with Arsis in 2003. Yeah. And it was the first time Ion Dissonance ever came to the U.S. And I never, I couldn't believe what I was seeing in my basement. But uh, yeah. I, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Yeah. It was like, they're so nice and Canadian. And then they started playing this stuff that was uh, beyond comprehension, basically. Um, anyways, that's a trivia for you. But yeah, I think that um, if you're fueled by anger, then a shitty situation can bring out the best in you. But if the shitty situation is something to where you're, they're not going to put your stuff out and you're not allowed to uh, do anything, then what? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't truly don't know what I would do. What do you do? I had a situation like that, um, that I got out of that. No, it wasn't like that. It was actually good. Uh, so let me just clarify. Uh, I love these people. Um, so my band was signed to Roadrunner, which I think is, you know, it's fucking Roadrunner and they were great and they treated us great. Um, but we weren't big enough to like, you know, to get their full attention. Like you need, you need to move some serious records, especially in 2007 and eight, you need to move some serious amount of records in order for them to get, to really get the machine behind you, which is totally understandable. And they ended up licensing us to Century Media, which is the right move. But in the meantime, my name and likeness and our name and likeness is we couldn't do other things. And like, we're all professional musicians and had a bunch of projects and used our names and likenesses to generate an income. And I went to the Roadrunner office and I sat down with like the president or A&R guy and was like, thank you for giving me a career. Thank you for 
putting me on the map, like everything that's going to happen in the future. And I still mean that, like what I'm doing now is because you guys gave us a shot. I understand that you have other priorities. I totally get it. Of course you have other priorities, but I really need you to let us out because uh, we can't do anything. And if you guys aren't going to do it, you know, if you guys aren't going to support us so that we can do this full time, which I don't expect you to, then at least let us go so that we can not be stuck. And they were totally cool about it. And then they told me that they wished that I would come talk to their artists <laughs> about a uh, music business or something. I feel like sometimes when you hear about these situations, also there's this like third option, which is what could have happened if the musician had just tried to communicate, <laughs> you know, instead of being like, these people are fucking assholes and crooks and are ruining my life. What if they just tried to talk to them? I mean, yeah, communication. It's a, it's a massive part of it. And that's, you know, kind of to just while we're on like the label talk, it's like kind of the same. We're in a good spot with fearless, you know, cause it's like, we have, we have that open communication and it's like, you know, it's, I think what we've decided on this podcast so far is that being in a band or being a musician is quite literally just like having a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's like, you know, it's everything that you work on in a relationship with a single person is just with like five people or seven, you know, however many people are in your band and then communicating with your label, communicating with your producer, compromising with your label, compromising with your producer. It's like, like it's, you know, there are good ways. There are ways to have good, those good relationships. It's just, you know, it, it, it takes both sides in order to do that. And I feel like if you're an artist and you sit back and wait for the label to do everything, you're shit out of luck. That's not going to do anything for you. You're just going to sit there and you're going to be in limbo. You're going to make a couple records and that's that. You're not going to be, you know, you're not going to be moving forward with them. But I guess to kind of go back to what you were saying is that that's great that that, you know, that's how that, or, you know, that's what that outcome of that situation was that you were actually able to sit down and be like, can you please just, you know, let us get out of here. And like the fact that they wanted to keep working with you too, it's like that, that's amazing. You know, you don't hear that stuff very often, I feel. Well, we're still cool to this day. Like on, I've had Roadrunner artists on Nail the Mix. It's always easy to deal with them. My A&R guy who then went on to Nuclear Blast, Monty Connor, we've licensed plenty of his artists on Nail the Mix. Like, yeah, it all stayed cool over a decade later. And I think that when I think back to some other people I know who were in a potentially bad situation, the way they dealt with it totally tanked their futures. Like they were in a similar sort of situation or kind of similar, not exact, but like instead of just talking, they got aggressive, didn't work out. I think that's what the music industry is though, isn't it? It's uh, the ability not only to uh, be democratic, but also a way to not burn bridges when you don't need to. It's a very good point. <laughs> so we were talking about, you know, how, when to, uh, what was it we were talking about earlier about um, when to take charge and when to sit back. And that's a, a point when you have to take charge of your own future, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it's, it's weird because at some point it's like, you do need to trust the people you work with, right? So if somebody says you're trying to move too fast, there's an order to which these things are done or like, you're not going to get this. We're not submitting you for this tour because you're not ready. Like uh, we're submitting you for these tours because you need to establish, uh, 
need to establish yourself first, et cetera. I feel like sometimes people can be very, very impatient, not trust the people they're working with, not trust that they understand the way things should go and then end up screwing things up that way too. But then on the other hand, you also hear about situations where somebody is signed to a management company or with a booking agent and literally they do nothing at all. And so how do you know the difference between getting ahead of yourself versus I'm dealing with people who don't care. We need to either speak up or get out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, and I think if you're a, the kind of person that doesn't necessarily have a good judge of character, you know, you can fall into those, you know, situations where it's like, you know, you're paying these people to sit around and not even think about you versus, you know, again, like us, like we're very lucky with our management and our label, like everybody that we have surrounding us are, you know, great people. So it's like, yeah, I think it, it comes back to that judge of character. It's funny, like our, just like a quick story, like our manager, Avange, she called us before we were signed to like a very small independent label, but she had called us and she was, you know, very straightforward with us. She was like, you guys are awesome. A little bit about me. I'm from South Philly. I lived there for, you know, 20 years. I worked at Tattooed Mom and it's like right, right from there, you know, them being somebody that's also from Philly, it's like, okay, we're already going to get along in this conversation. But, you know, she just immediately went into it. She was like, I love your guys' music. You're young. You don't know shit about anything. Let me help you. Like, don't pay me until we actually start making money. But I see something in you guys and I want to, I want to work with you and like be in your, you know, in your journey or on your journey with you. And, you know, had that been a different person that, you know, put off a vibe that's like, you know, slimy or something like that, like we were luckily able to, you know, kind of see that and even being younger, still having that like judge of character. But yeah, I think, I think it's a, it's a very tough industry that we are in because so many people are slimy like that, but finding the right crew and finding like the right group of people to be around you that you can enjoy, not only as, you know, partners or business partners or whatever, but just as people and human beings is such an important thing. Did your manager help you with your signing? to fearless because obviously you guys were really young when that happened she did yeah yeah we have two finance majors in the band all right that's weird that's really useful <laughs> yeah it's quite helpful not having a business manager that we pay and he's just our drummer so you don't pay your drummer <laughs> not any more than i make i don't think anyways but i guess you could ask him <laughs> <laughs> you found the first slimy member of your band <laughs> No, there's two finance majors, dude, too. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're fucked. Sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Go on. Go on. No, it, yeah. That's okay. She did help us out. But so, you know, when it came to negotiating that contract, she she helped us out very much there. Um, our drummer also has a minor in, or I don't know if it's a minor, if he'd like double majors. I don't know how any of the college stuff works, but he uh, he has a music business degree as well. So him being like fresh out of college, it was all like still in his brain. So he was going through a lot of that with her back and forth and, you know, with the lawyer that we were working with and all that. But yes, to answer your question in a very long winded way, she was there to help us out with that. Yes. Perfect. It's interesting because sometimes when a band is unsigned, the best thing is for them to avoid any management offers that come their way. Yeah. I mean, typically, right? Typically. Um, I guess at least where we were, we weren't doing anything. Like we were just trying to write songs and we had, you know, like a, an EP or two that we had put out that, you know, we paid for ourselves and everything. And it's a very unusual story uh, for a band that's unsigned 
to get approached by a manager that can actually help them. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and I guess we didn't know any better, like not in a bad way because like she is awesome. Like she's been with us for six years now and she's like this, you know, she's the sweetest woman ever until you piss her off. And then, you know, she'll just come right at your neck and, you know, that's that. That's what you want. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> yeah. what you want. Yeah, she she has done, you know, she, we talk to her, you know, al- almost daily. It's like, we've got our group thread. We're always, you know, shooting the shit, talking ideas. And when it comes time to go on the road, we go over and hang out and go on, you know, have dinner together and shit. Like, she's just like a homie that also makes sure that, you know, things are happening always. Every once in a while, you hear about a story like this where, a manager got involved with an unsigned band and was uh, instrumental in helping them no longer be a local band and uh, get their career going. But more often than not, when an unsigned band gets approached by management, it's usually it's usually people that don't know what they're doing, um, who are either either they have the best of intention, but have zero ability. Um, or experience or knowledge, like zero, um, you know, they're on the same level as the band when it comes to the industry, or they're trying to prey on people that don't know better. So they see, they see the unsigned bands as like easy targets because they have big dreams and no experience. And so they don't, they don't know that they're, that things don't work a certain way. I think it's, um, as you were saying earlier, Dallas, this is a kind of cutthroat industry. You have to be really careful. And I think we generally need to be very good judges of character. Um, and sometimes that can be difficult. And, you know, I've heard many horror stories from many bands in the UK and one name just com- keeps repeating in my mind over the last 10 seconds. He was part of a very, very big label. I knew a couple of friends bands that got completely screwed over by this guy. And even my previous band nearly did buy him. What do you mean by screwed over? So basically signed them into deals that were impossible. Got it. Never fulfilled them. Four or five album deals. Had to pay for everything themselves. There's actually one of those bands is still happening now. They're actually doing pretty well. They're on Century Media. I'm not going to name names. But yeah, I think it's just down to judge of character. And that is a skill set that obviously requires time, experience, the older you get, the more you can see through the bullshit based off experience of who you've met in the industry. You do hear those stories about people calling themselves managers. They're not really managers. More more often than not, than you see the, the bigger managers of bigger bands taking on unsigned bands, which as much as that would be great to see more of that, it's always down to time. <laughs> ROI. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. I just got, you know, uh, you know, Rocky, you know, where... He, the Italian stallion just gets the opportunity to fight the champ. It just, for some reason, it's just taken me to that film, this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen very often in real life. It just doesn't know. So yeah, it's great to hear that that actually happened to you guys. Yeah. That you found someone that you can trust, someone that's helped you with your, with getting signed to fearless. So at uh, such a young age as well. And I think it says a lot of positive that you've been with this person since before you were signed till now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, like I said, we're, we're very lucky that, you know, all of that happened and it all kind of happened at the same time. But like I said, you know, the counter to it is like, you know, if you don't have that 
ability to have good judge of character, it's like you get, you can get fucked. Like, and we could have, you know, but it's, we, we felt that we knew that she was the right one. And, you know, we knew we needed help. And like I said, it was like the whole, like, you know, don't pay me right now. Let's, let's figure that out. Like when we're actually making money together, like, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But for now, like you guys are young and I want to help you. And I feel like that's like, you know, when things like that happen to you as a human being, it's like, then you want to be the person that's, that's, you know, kind of paying that forward and being helpful to others. And I think hopefully, yeah, if, <laughs> yeah. as long as you're not a fucking asshole, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unless you have to be, unless you have to, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, I, I can certainly be one, but you know, I, I think that, you know, that's one of the many times in life for me anyways, it's like, there's no reason this person should be helping me or, or, you know, giving me guidance on this or, you know, whatever. But then, like I said, it makes you want to be that person to somebody else. Like if you've got knowledge about something and a person needs help, like just go help them if they ask for it. I think that's where the music industry is a little bit different than maybe other points in life. Because if someone wants to genuinely help you, um, alarm bells start triggering. Yes. Um, what the hell do this, does this person want from me is generally my usual, you know, <laughs> there's a few red flags yeah like, so like people wanting to help is <laughs> so fucked up but that's a red flag well here's another one and what's interesting is i have had to say this to people i work with and i'm so aware of this one because i know what it sounds like and generally when people say it you run the fuck away like if i tell somebody you have to trust that pay will increase over time with us and that we take care of everyone that works for us. And, you know, we do what we can salary ranges that we can afford, but as you produce results, we are going to take care of you. I think lots of times in music, when people say there'll be money later, run the <laughs> fuck away, like just run. I'm not saying like, don't pay people and make them just trust that one day there will be money later. But what I mean is like, we're not Amazon. So, you know, we can't just like start off at an Amazon salary. And, uh, oh, since we're a small company, lots of stuff is based on results, like help the company grow right now. That's a measurable thing. You know, you, someone who works for Amazon, most likely, even if they're amazing, is not going to help Amazon really grow in a noticeable way. They're too big at our stage. Yeah. One person can make a huge difference. Um, and, uh, to get people to believe you is tough for me, but no, it's not tough to get them to believe me, but it's tough for me to use those words because I know that when people have said that kind of shit to me in the past, spidey sense, alarm bells, like red lights just start flashing. Like this person is full of shit. So yeah, so there will be money later. <laughs> I want to help you. You're going to do great. <laughs> yeah, those are all uh, red flags. Yeah. For real, without joking though, whenever someone wants to help me, I do immediately question why. I have had someone come into my life recently that's a little further along than me in the uh, entrepreneurial space who is legitimately helping me. But uh, as it turns out, there was something I could legitimately help him with too. So the thing that I always think about is why do they want to help? Like, what is the reason? It's a very tiny percentage of people who just want to help. So I always wonder, what's the reason? Like, why? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's nefarious, though. I completely understand, like, thinking about it that way. And I think that in, I think it kind of comes back to 
like us being in the industry that we are. It's like everybody's always trying to get a leg ahead. And it's like, how can I step on this person to get to this person? And it's like, oh, I'll help this guy and, and he'll do this for me. And then I'll just, you know, keep doing that. And it's like, that's such a shit part of this, this world, I feel like is, you know, that constant, like, you know, kind of watching your back sort of thing that, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it, I'm sure it's been that way forever, but it's like, I don't know, mm -hmm. just that sucks. Cause I feel like, you know, you're, you're a server at a bar for instance or something. And it's like, I don't think that, you know, they're not thinking like that. They're just like, let's get these fucking people drinks and food and, and get it done together and get the hell out of here. Hopefully not have to deal with too many assholes tonight. Right. There is a motion for that as well in the States. So it's to get the best possible tip. So yes, it's, it's still kind of like different than, for example, the UK tipping is not, really a regular thing you kind of do it when the service is exceptional or the meal's really good but it's not like required every single time where you're thinking am i going to give this person 10 percent, 15 percent, or am i just going to really ruin their day <laughs> you know so i think i think again that that is again the same kind of thing where it's someone is going out of their way because they know that they're going to get something out of it. But the thing is, it's not necessarily nefarious, right? No, it's just that they're trying to make a living. Well, if you ask yourself, why is this person trying to help? And it turns out, well, they they can both believe in you and want to help and also have something they want to get out of it. Both of those things can coexist and it's not necessarily bad. It doesn't mean they want to help you because of some conspiracy or some <laughs> like some fucked up plan. So I think it's important to distinguish between when someone approaches wanting to help and there's a predatory angle to it mm. versus someone who's approaching you wanting to help because they legitimately want to help you. But then also there's a benefit to them. I actually think that's the best possible scenario. If both parties are getting something out of it, I think that's the best possible scenario and that leads to the longest lasting relationships actually yeah because at that point you're you know you're you're more so working together you it's the whole you scratch my back i scratch yours thing yeah i know what you mean though about always having to watch your back it is an unfortunate part of this industry but i also think that it's part of what it like you couldn't have an industry that's this free as in like has this little of a corporate structure sure and also has such a payoff. Yeah. And also is something that's based on stuff that people take very personally. Like you couldn't, you can't like mix those elements without shit getting weird at times. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. You're dealing with people's egos. You're dealing with their identity as humans. You're dealing with potentially a lot of money. You're dealing with no oversight whatsoever. Like no rules really it is kind of the wild west and so it sucks a little but at the same time if you kind of see it in my opinion like the wild west it's uh <laughs> and approach it that way yeah it's kind of cool i think yeah no no you're totally right totally <laughs> wild west great way of thinking about it it is true we kind of just do whatever the hell we want yes and it works or it doesn't we've talked about like scenarios on this podcast that can go any number of different ways. Like these red flag scenarios we've discussed, like we all know people who were in those scenarios and did great. Yeah. Right. Like we know the people who were discovered when they were like after playing one show and ended up getting huge. And then we know, you know, I know that guitar teacher who got fucking decimated 
and uh, everything in between. Like, you know how, Brown, you were talking about getting signed to like five album deals. Well, the Roadrunner standard deal was seven, right? (laughs) And um, I'm sure Slipknot signed it. Oh, yeah, they did. But that was at a time period when, you know, advances were, for lack of a better word, fantastic. But still, back then in like 99, when I was going to Berkeley, I took a music business class that was about the structure of major labels and all about deals. And the the instructor had signed big artists at a major label. And even back then, like we were being told, don't sign anything over three albums, like uh, for several reasons. So then you get this Roadrunner deal that's seven albums. And if I had listened to that teacher, would have turned it down. And I bet if Slipknot had listened to that teacher or something, they would have turned it down too. The smart thing would be to turn down a seven album deal. But then on the other hand, we know all these success stories who did take that deal and did fine. And which kind of just brings me back to the there's no rules here and you kind of have to make your own decisions based on the information you've got on the ground, basically. 100%. However, that said, do you have any sort of thoughts on what it takes for an unsigned band to get the attention of a label these days? That's a tough one. I know. It's hard. It's hard just because like, I can only really like the only experience that I have with it is just like our own, you know, our own story. Well, then let's talk about that. I know the manager was in the equation, but how did the process of getting their attention and actually having it come to fruition come about? So I think, you know, I remember like little details that, you know, maybe are important or maybe weren't, but it's like, you know, given the kind of the age of like technology with all the streaming platforms and stuff. I remember getting, we had a song that got playlisted and it was playlisted by hopeless records. This is when you were unsigned. So we were, we were signed to uh, that very small label in California. It was called anchor 84. And we had, you know, self-funded two EPs. Pretty much like being unsigned. Pretty much like being unsigned. But Cody, he's the guy that owns the label. We're still very good friends with him. He's, you know, he's a, he's our homie. Uh, nice dude. Shout out, Cody. Yeah, shout out to Cody. I'll see you soon, I'm sure. You know, I remember things like this happening, like where, you know, you get playlisted and this is maybe 2014, 15. So like, you know, I know there's a much heavier emphasis on playlisting now than maybe there was like five years ago. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a combination of that. And, you know, when those things start to happen, it's like you get, you know, little like features in things like alternative press or like, you know, the, 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 you know, kind of like the scene, like news outlets. I think when like those little things kind of started happening, I guess, I guess ears kind of perked up at these, you know, smaller independent labels like Hopeless and Fearless. And I think there was like one other one that, had you know said maybe they wanted to send something over for us to read but it sounds so cliche and i hate that i'm going to say this but like just as much effort as you can actually put into it put into it because like when we were doing like when we started doing this like for real like we were either in college or working full-time jobs and it's like every second that we weren't doing that we were focusing on this and like trying to just get any sort of you know it's just like throwing the throwing the line out and trying to get a bite wherever we could, whether it would be like a write up or, um, you know, like those playlists and things like that. It's just like small stuff like that can go a long way. Cause you never know like who at what label is listening to you and then going to have, you know, 
have a song stuck in their head and be like, what the hell was that band? Like, I want to get, I want to figure out who they were and see what they're doing. And it's like, then that starts that conversation. That's a really important point. Yes. Is that you don't know who's listening. Yeah. Like even. <laughs> you don't. It could be anyone. Yeah. So, and I, and I think that work, that works on all levels. You know, I feel like we're in the time period of like the, you know, quote unquote, like bedroom musician, like these, you know, these kids that are on Instagram and like TikTok and stuff, they're getting, you know, because they've got a catchy little acoustic, you know, acoustic guitar and, and, you know, vocal. And it sounds like it was recorded in the corner of a room. It, it becomes, you know, Billie Eilish or something like that. You know what I mean? It's just like, you never know what is going to happen or, you know, like we agreed, like you don't know who's listening. So it's like, just give it absolutely every ounce that you want to give it. And, you know, I think if you're the, if you're a strong willed person and, like for me, like I didn't really have another option. It was either I work at Guitar Center for the rest of my life or I do this and try to make it happen. And luckily with, you know, the rest of my crew, we're making this happen. And now this is what I do, but it's just the focus and putting in the time. It's like any other job. You don't succeed if you don't put in the work and and always try to learn more about your craft. Yeah. I think that a lot of musicians in this music industry expect 12 hour workday results by working one hour a month. Yeah. And I truly don't understand that mentality. I don't understand. And it's, it's, I don't understand that sense of entitlement. It's like, nobody owes you shit about anything. You need to work for everything. You don't, nobody like, no matter what your job is, the, the sense of, I need a promotion. I've been working here for six months. I've been doing my job. It's like, great. Do more than what your job is. Do more than just what you're expected of. And then you'll get you'll get the promotion. Exactly. Something will happen. Something will happen. You'll get noticed. Someone will notice. It might not be at your job, but someone will notice. And uh, I feel like uh, I know this cliche, and I know you both know this cliche, that there's all these great undiscovered artists, like great undiscovered bands. And I, you know, there's some truth to that because great bands of the future that haven't been discovered yet have to get discovered at some point, right? However, Brown, you know this. <laughs> After doing enough tours with local openers all over the world and getting all their demos, like, and just being inundated with what is actually out there, there's very few times, if ever, that I've encountered an undiscovered artist that's truly great. Yeah. I have encountered a couple that then got discovered because they were truly great. That whole like great artist and obscurity thing, super fucking rare, actually. There's been a few where I've been like, this band are excellent. But what it comes down to at that point, I don't think it's, th there's a fine line between whether people are expecting something because they're not working hard on it versus if they're concentrating on 100% the correct thing Yep, that too. with what they're doing in their band. So for example, someone will spend all of their time writing the best music in the world and they could be phenomenal at it, but then have absolutely zero marketing skills, social media skills and all of that stuff. And at that point, no one's going to hear it because they haven't focused enough of their time into doing that part of the job. That goes the same with signed bands as well. You know, times have changed a lot since, you know, the 90s when social media wasn't a thing. And all that was really required of you was once every couple of years, you need to write an album and you need to go on tour. And then the label and the management will deal with any, everything else. I think it's changed a lot since then where the, the focus is so on social media that if you don't have that skill set to really deal with that, then 
that's where you're going to be undiscovered. Yeah. You can spend all this time writing this amazing music. And I for sure know that out there, there is some incredible music. If you don't have the social skills to forward it, then the it's not that you're not working hard enough. Your focus is in the complete wrong place. Yeah. We know bands, don't we? That, you know, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say anything negative. I'm going to say we don't like them. <laughs> I'm going to say that I'm not ready for it. There's many bands that I'm not ready for, let's say. Not a fan of the music, but I'm just going to say that I don't understand it. And they get way further than someone that you might appreciate more as a musician. And the main reason is, is that they know the marketing and how to market themselves, which is equally as important as the music. In a way that kind of goes to my point, though, there's usually a reason. Like those people that you know who are like great and didn't get that far, they didn't go undiscovered. They just fucked up. Usually. (laughs) Usually. (laughs) Most cases, they just fucked up. Sometimes, I th- I think it's also unlucky. Maybe also wrong time. Yes, that too. Like, there's many bands that I know that have incredible music and they were ahead of their time. That's another good example as well, actually, of it that, pe- that maybe the audience wasn't ready for it. Yeah, it happens. But, you know, I was just thinking of the band Igor. Oh, yeah, great band. Great band, but totally weird. And they're actually doing pretty well. The reason I'm bringing them up is because I think someone listening might be like, I'm all about the music. I don't care about that marketing shit or that branding or any of that stuff. Like I'm all about the art. Paying attention to that stuff properly doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice the art. Just look at a band like Igor. They are totally on their game with the branding, their music videos, like they're videos are fucking phenomenal which is a big part of why they're doing so well and they have no way shape or form sacrificed the music but obviously there had to be a lot of focus on that visual side of it i don't think that if you want a career you can ignore all the other elements of making it a career so i think what you're saying is true but i would say that the problem is they're not looking at it through a lens of a career holistically they're looking at it more like a passion project maybe yeah which actually brings me dallas like uh how much focus do you guys focus on this kind of aspect is this something that is constantly in discussion yeah i'm very lucky with the group of guys that i get to do this with because everybody has their own role so I, th- I think the people that look at this and only, you know, focus on one spot or even the ones that have like that rock star mentality of like, oh, I don't, you know, that I don't give a shit about that. I'm just writing the music. Like, that's like, that's what this is all about. People will find it. It's like, I'm not going to spend it, you know, they're not, but I think it's the laziness that they don't want to spend time trying to figure out how to market themselves or how to look a little bit more presentable in a photo or like, you know, so I'm lucky with the guys that I work with because everybody's got their own job. So like I was saying, like our drummer is our business manager. So he is literally upstairs right now, probably staring at an Excel sheet doing something. Our singer and our, um, you know, our creative guy, Jordan, he does all of our photo. He does all of our music videos for us. And then Colin and him, they work on all of our merch. So our merch business is a very different thing where it, it works more like a streetwear brand as opposed to a, you know, as opposed to band merch. Sometimes it says our name on it. And then other times it has different logos that we have spent 
you know, a year trying to figure out and get right with, you know, other companies that we bring in. Like that's a whole other side of the business that while I try to understand every single part of it or as much of it as I can, I just don't like, I am not a person that can do that. I do the music stuff. So there's so much more that goes into this nowadays than just writing songs and relying on third parties to do your marketing or push your record or find clever ways of of getting people to come out to shows and you know so i'm like i said i'm lucky to work with these guys because it's like it's a 24-hour operation like somebody's always doing something whether i'm writing a song people are working on merch they're you know spending a day taking photos of the merch to look beautiful to be on the website but like we do all that stuff in house and I, I i don't know it's it's hard to say i think we're a very blessed group of gentlemen that get to rely on each other in that sense it's like we get to lean on each other and it's like if you're not figuring one thing out go ask nick if you can help him with something like there's always something to do and it, it's an ecosystem that you have to maintain you know and it's not just writing music I love writing the music. That's like what I get the most, you know, I have the most pleasure doing that rather than feeling a cloth for a, you know, as a sample for a garment and be like, I don't know, this feels like a t-shirt to me, but to those guys, like that's what they're good at. So they do that. That's their role in the band. And, you know, so everybody's got their role. I think there's, there's just, I guess the point being, there's so much more to focus on than just writing the best music that you can. For our listeners, that is probably the most important thing is everyone in the band knowing their role. Yeah. And respecting it. And respect. That's the most important thing. Yeah, for sure. There's more to being in a band than writing the music and going on tour. And I think too, being in a band, it's being open to learning new things because at the end of it, we're all doing this together and we're all figuring it out together. So like, for instance, our guitar player, our other guitar player, Andrew, oftentimes he's, you know, writing music with me and, you know, we're bouncing ideas off of each other, whatever it is. But it got to the point now where like we're we're putting a bigger focus on social media than we had been before which i already thought was a huge focus but now it's an even larger focus where we need to you know create more videos and we're doing playthroughs and things like that and our you know our main guy jordan who is kind of responsible for a lot of that stuff he said andrew look i really need help like i need you to figure out how to i know you have final cut i know you have a camera i need you to kind of take this off my plate can you figure out how to do this like maybe get with dallas you guys can you know record the audio for the playthroughs and like you guys shoot the videos together in the basement like i just need you to do this and while we're not video guys by any means at all it's 2021 and you can make stuff look good pretty pretty quickly you just have to spend you know a day or two trying to figure out how to make it look like the way you want it and then you can go for it so it's like that on a on a macro level of always being open and trying to help one another in any facet of the business you said social so i went to your instagram and i see this since this is going to be in the future um let's just say that it is the one posted on october 5th 2021 and it's this stack of shirts with the hat on top. Looks like uh, you're at like uh, Hollister or something like, and it's legit clothing. Yeah. If you can work it out in your contract with your label to not have that be even a discussion, then you're, I guess, uh, attracted to spending more time on doing that and making that a good part of your, your revenue when it comes to your business. It's photographed very well. And it's photographed in a way that people who wear clothes like this would respond to again doing that in-house you don't you know we didn't pay anybody to do that 
our friend from high school growing up that is still our best friend and just goes on tour with us, you know, did it, you know? So I think it's, it's just fun. It's having this group of capable people in your life that are also like, they were your best friends before even starting to do this. At least for me, that's how this went, you know? So it's, I guess kind of going back to like, there's, you know, that conversation we were having where there, there's no rules in the, in our job. It's like, we just get to hang out and be homies and, you know, create, you know, art together and figure out how to get people to see it and people to like it. And, you know, it's, it's a fun thing. It's if, if you have the right people, if you have the right people around you, I feel like it, it can be a very, very fun and, and interesting, interesting job. So is most of this photography, the in-house stuff you're talking about? Yep. Band, like this band photo on September 26th, for instance? Still our guy. It's impressive. Thank you. You guys basically are in charge of, uh, not in charge of, of course you're in charge of, but you guys have owned every aspect of making this real. Yes. You know, Jordan is our, is our sixth member. So while he's not on stage with us playing an instrument, you'll see him popping around on stage, taking photos, just like he is doing all the behind, behind the scenes stuff. You know, he shoots our music videos. He directs, he directs them. He edits them. He's our silent member. I love the idea of it being self-contained. So you don't wait for anyone. No, if we need something done, we do it. You know, it's, I feel like it's just, that's, I guess maybe that's the one thing that we have learned in this industry is you can't, you can't wait on people. You can't expect things to happen overnight unless you do them yourself. Yourself. Yeah. So like I said, like come, coming back to like making these, like, you know, how like Instagram, like the reels are a big thing now. Cause it's like their version of TikTok, which I don't yeah. understand TikTok. I've never had TikTok. I get that they're like short videos, like how Vine was like years ago, but that's a, you know, that's a focus for us now. So it's like, okay, so what 30 second video can we put together? We sit, we sit down or we text about it for an hour and say, you know, here's, here's three songs that I want to play on guitar and just put on, you know, put on the internet and, you know, just show people what it looks like to play it. And that's that, or just having the ability to have those conversations and not just be like, Oh, this is boring. I hate this. Like social media sucks. Like it does suck, but whether you like it or not, you have to use it. It's a very valuable tool and resource. Yep. And it doesn't matter what job you're in, there's going to be one aspect about it that you don't like. Yep. And you just have to get on with it. I mean, if you don't like social media, maybe let the guy in the band that does understand it maybe more or enjoys doing it, let them deal with exactly. it. And just be help when you need to be. When you need to be there and present, just be like, all right, I'll do it right now. Yeah, exactly. What I think is cool, though, is like the same way that you're not so into picking out clothing. I'm assuming that you're, you know, like you are fulfilling a function that lots of other people don't really care about knowing how to record. Yeah. They make fun of me. They just say I'm down here pressing buttons. Cause like I, you know, I'm finding sounds and like, you know, when I like a sound or like when I have an idea for a sound, like I might sit there for five or 10 minutes and I'll like, oh, Bill's pressing buttons. Like they call me Bill. My first name is William. They're like Dallas is down there pressing buttons. He's just doing his thing. Like, you know, so yeah, like I, I fulfill that spot just as like you just said, like those guys, they, they do that important, you know, it's basically, it's just research. They're, deciding what clothing they want to, you know, or what garments they want to pick out for certain things. And it's like, that doesn't tickle my fancy, but they enjoy doing that just as I enjoy sitting in front of this computer and staring at it for eight, eight to 10 hours a day. 
you know. <laughs> yeah, I find the best kinds of partnerships are the ones where there's a complementary sort of relationship happening. Yeah. And you take the piss out of the other person's job. <laughs> yeah. Even though you're super thankful that they're around because then you don't have to fucking do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I wouldn't want to do that job either. No, they enjoy it. Though. They love doing it. It's pretty interesting that you talked about different fabrics. So my my girlfriend is actually, she she's an artist that makes a bunch of different sculptures and stuff like that. And part of her job is making sure she gets the right materials for the job. And I had no fucking idea that there was that many choices of fabric. Oh, yeah. I found out a lot. <laughs> I now know what viscose is. Yeah, it's a whole whole world, man. It's like, it's insane. What they just like shout out like model numbers from different companies. Like the, and I'm just like, what, like what, like, what are we talking about? (laughs) This makes absolutely no sense, but probably to the point of like when I'm talking about something that I'm getting very excited about in the computer or writing a part, it's like, I'm explaining why I'm excited about it. And it's like, Maybe to them, that just doesn't make any sense. Or, it, you know, I could be, I don't know, <laughs> wild world. The, clo- the clothing and garment, fabric, all that stuff. Someone's got to do it. Yes, yeah, somebody has to do it. And to your point, luckily it's not me because I don't think I would be very good at that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny when you don't think you're going to enjoy something and then you end up actually enjoying it. Yeah, that's the other side. It's like I could love getting down and just like figuring out, like just like seeing like a spreadsheet of like all the mo- like the models are different. You know, here's why this is different than this. And it's like, then it could be, that could be like a whole separate thing that I get. Like, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I couldn't jump down that hole. Yeah, I don't blame you. Well, um, Dallas, I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to... uh hang out with us. It has been a pleasure. Sure. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun. Like I said, I don't get to do, you know, get to do this stuff very often. So it was, it was great to get to chat with you guys and, and talk about the stuff that I get to do for the band and all that. So likewise, man, it was great to chat to you, man. You should ask your members to let you do these more often. Cause you were a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, normally nobody wants to talk about gear and stuff. No, like, you know, it's, it's, they want to, what's the album about? That's the thing we don't want to talk about. <laughs> no, no offense or anything. No, no, I, I, I get it. You can read it literally anywhere. I'm sure somebody's asked it. And we'll ask it again and again and again and again. Exactly. Well, yeah. Thank you guys so much. Interesting episode, man. I am always inspired and impressed by bands and musicians who have taken it upon themselves to make their careers work regardless of what it is that they have to do. Yeah. Just from talking to to Dallas there, it was uh, pretty obvious that they want to make it work. And there was a clear focus on everyone in their band really honing in on what they were good at, which I think is really important for everyone to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And it's less about what you wish you were good at and more about what your strengths actually are that matter. Exactly. And the, you know, the same thing happens just in any business. You, uh, you get to a point where you find out what your skill sets are and you really focus on those and make them better. And then everyone reaps the rewards of that, whoever's involved. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like if you're a guitar player in a metal band, you got to know how to downpick. <laughs> got to hone in on those skills, man. Yeah, you do. You got to learn how to downpick. If you want to shred, you got to learn how to alternate pick, economy pick, hybrid pick. You got to do all those things. Do you like that transition? I did. I loved it. Yeah. You're a fucking motherfucking lyrical wordsmith, motherfucking genius. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Hone those down picking skills at the down picking gym. But no, for real, we talk a lot about how the definition of a modern musician 
is multifaceted. He basically just said what we have been saying. Like uh, there's, there's a case in point, learning how to make some video just because he has to, um, knows how to record. It's part of the deal. Like his job description is exactly what I think the job description of a modern musician is. Exactly. And like even he, he said it, he tries to understand every aspect of what's going on, but it's not necessarily his focus for some elements of it. He lets the other people in his team deal with the things they're better at, but still understands it. And I think that's really important for any band member to really understand it, or a modern metal guitar player or any guitar player that even if you're not necessarily doing the job, having the understanding so you can chip in. Yeah, absolutely. So don't be an idiot. <laughs> don't be an imbecile. <laughs> just don't be an idiot. Yeah. Just learn everything. Every single thing. Everything. Yeah. Knowledge is power. <laughs> <laughs> even if you just learn it a little bit, just learn it a little bit. Yeah, no, that's true. I do think you should know a little bit about every aspect so that you can spot a disaster on the way, like before it becomes a disaster. That's a whole other topic. Brown, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. As always, I enjoyed this episode a lot. It was great to chat to you in Dallas and I'll see you next week. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>